Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. Now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. My special guest today is noted poet Christian J. Collier. His new book of poetry, The Gleaning of the Blade, is available now. Hello, Christian. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yes, and I'm so glad that you're here because when I saw the cover of the book, read about the book, I was so excited. That's excellent. You know, um, <laughs> I, I felt that way when I saw the cover of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you did. Because <laughs> I'm going to ask you, tell me about the cover, but I'll, I'll ask you those questions later. What I want to know first is, what is poetry to you? Okay. Uh, the the hard questions uh, first. Um, mm-hmm. And there's there's a poet, Somaz Sharif, uh, who recently did an interview, and, and uh, to paraphrase her answers, that uh, – I think poetry's job is to remind us that we're going to die, but we're not dead yet. And uh, I love that. But um, it kind of offers something, you know, relatively original. Um, I think, you know, just breaking it down, poetry is using language to interrogate and or the human condition, you know, which is predominantly uh, exploring themes of, of love, death, and desire. Wow. It's very nice, very nice. Why do you believe it's important? What 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 makes it important? What makes poetry important? Um, I think that any forum that allows for for truth telling uh, and and space to to question and investigate who we are, uh, why we are here, and and what has been done to us, for example, are are all essential. Mm-hmm. You know, people people have been abused and killed over poems. People have been exiled from their homes over poems. Um, I remember, um, I remember Amiri Baraka, you know, receiving a lot of public scorn over his poem, somebody blow up America after nine 11. So the fact that in, in this century, you know, a poem could draw that much ire shows how strong and effective poems are. Wow. It's very nice. I like that. They are effective and they are strong and they are powerful. Now, Let's talk about your book. I want to hear about your book, The Gleaming of the Blade. Tell me about the title. Yeah, so I, I'm a big fan of, of multiple meanings. And um, last year I had the opportunity to teach a workshop, and uh, one of the things that we talked about was Duende, you know, basically that, that we all carry a shadow self. And once we kind of get into the murk of it, more interesting things tend to happen. You know, um, I think about uh, Miss Lowe's song, The X Factor, you know, once the, the first refrain is, you know, nobody loves you more than, than me and no one ever will. But then later in the song, we get nobody's hurt me more than you know, nobody ever will. You know what I mean? So we get both sides of the point and that's what makes, that's what makes the song so uh, impactful. Um, but there's an excellent quote from uh, Jen's wiki uh, talking about, Duende in music, and um, 
to again paraphrase uh, one of the things that that Zwicky says is um, by embracing Duende, that shows us the, the the gleaming of the knife, you know, so to speak. And mm-hmm. I love that. And I was thinking about that, and then also I was thinking about um, wolf traps, which is you know the the old adage that um, if you bury a the handle of a a, a knife in snow and in, in ice wolves will, will come and um they're they're kind of attracted to the gleaming of it and they will oh, wow. um, essentially look at it um and then they, they start noticing blood coming so oh they're like oh there's something there's something great at the end of this and uh, eventually by the time they realize that that something's wrong it's too late they're they're going to either bleed out or once they return to the pack the wolves who are blood hungry you know they they, they pounce and I thought that that was such an apt way of kind of thinking about uh, the, the black experience in America. You yes. know, we have consistently been uh, promised, you know, better um, equality and better. And then uh, and quickly, you know, time and time again, had those things stripped away um, and, and have been treated to brutality. And it's been great theater for the, the world to see. Um, yes. Black trauma um, is always entertainment uh, for other people. So mm-hmm. I, I thought about those two things, and um, after reworking the the poems in it, I was like, I think that this, I think that this title nails it. Um, the original title was was POV uh, for the the point of view shot in, in film, and um, yes, I, the, I think the poems still have that lens. But I just think that having that title just perfectly puts you in the seat to kind of experience what happens throughout it. So in terms of your inspiration to write the book, tell me a little bit more about that. Sure, absolutely. What inspired um, you? Uh, 20, 2015, really. You know, that was um, the year of, of Michael Brown and, and so many other things. And um Kind of coinciding with that is I received a grant from the Lost um, Literary um, Organization, and uh, one of the things that I wanted to do was really interrogate uh, race. Um, so I was interviewing people, just just hearing different stories about you know racism and and where they're at on on different sides of the spectrum, and then over time I just started you know, interrogating my own experience, my own life. And I started writing poems that, that kind of spoke to that. And um, there's been a lot of revision that, that's taken place over the years since then. But um, yes. that really kind of informed the, the book because, I mean, and obviously we're, we're in a moment now where, you know, there's, there's critical race theory is, is at the, the top of, you know, certain people's agendas, even though that doesn't accurately speak to what critical race theory is that they constantly yes. uh, incorrectly define it. And, and that's by design, but you know, I digress. But um, once you mention race, you know, people's ears kind of perk up and people start to feel really tense, you know, usually about it. But if you actually wait into it, you see a lot of different things and there are a lot of, of, of colors, no pun intended um, that you don't, get exposed to if you just automatically shut down once somebody starts talking about race. Yes. So I, I thought it would be I thought it would be an interesting uh theme uh to try to, to work at and, and turn around and interrogate. Um you know, I, I live in the South and, and 
uh, I always have, and that obviously has given me a, a very intimate relationship to race and racism. You know, like I can go 30 seconds down the street and see a rebel flag, you know? Um, yes. But also in, in contemporary America, you know, we, we still carry the, the ghosts of racism. So I think that yes, is we do. really fascinating to, you know, just to kind of walk around in that space and, and see it for, for what it is and what it's been. Well, without further ado, Christian J. Collier, please share a poem. All right. And uh, this is the first time I'm actually reading from the physical book. So oh. you guys get the, uh, the, the first kickoff of it. Um, All right. So this is called Benediction for the Black and Young. Children, we occupy a world not made to carry any one of us. Find the slivers of calm in the ash-filled air. Breathe. Do you feel the atoms coming apart around the garlic-white brims of our halos? We are living through the time that took touch from us, waiting through the stubble of the burning night, finessing our feet forward as best we can. Let us pray there is a just God at the end of all of this. Let us pray he sees the columns of our dead on the sour buds of the street, then stirs and says, enough. Let us pray the liquor that drags us from the bed of one day and into the next does not run out. Pray the Hennessy and crown stays put. Pray we can also do the same, sane and intact. Let us lay down our blues and not cross the threshold of another morning, howling for those we cannot see buried. Let us pray for the favor of the big sky, for burgundy wings no longer tucked beneath our shoulders and the sheath below the twitch of the stars. Let us bow our heads and dream a life that loves us better. May it be gold-hued. May our minds sculpt a love supreme that also holds our newborn ghosts. Let us whisper, because history says whenever someone black wonders aloud about the future, it instantly becomes a bruised sea of days they will never know. Children, we are only meant to forfeit all that has ever known our names. Let us fraternize with the conduit come to escort us away. Let the stomp of our forelimbs be the last bit of grace we grant this earth. Then let us rest well. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. That's incredible. That's the first one. All right. Incredible, my friend. Let us pray. What does it mean to you to be a black male poet in the field of poetry today? What does that mean to you? Or just to be a poet in the field? What does it mean? Well, I, I think that, you know, for me, for me to be uh, not just a poet, but a, a black poet, uh, a black American poet, it, yes. it means to me that you know, I'm I'm here because of the sacrifice and the the excellent work from those who come before me, mm. and um, I take that as a a you know a tremendous challenge to uh, try to do the same. You know, I I want to you know kind of keep the song going, and um, I want to do my due diligence to to make excellent work. Um, 
And uh, I also want to take what I've learned from these people and instill it in uh, other people that I come into contact with. You know, I, I'm, I am here because of the grace that other poets have offered me too. And uh, I think that's so vital, you know, and I think that for anybody who's, who's, you know, who finds themselves in a certain tradition and a certain craft, I think that lineage is always important. So I, I want to continue the lineage, you know. All right, very nice. What was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? An early experience? Um, well, I will say uh, I'm, I'm going to go in an, in an interesting direction. So um, about when I was in my junior year of, of high school is, is when uh, Deaf Poetry uh, premiered on HBO, right? So, I remember. Um, I remember. <laughs> oh, that was it, a show. It, it, it was a thing. You know, I would no matter what was going on on on, on Friday nights. It's like, ah, oh, I got I got to get home. I got to get home and I got to watch it. So, um, but I remember a couple years later, like I was in college. Um, I'm in college in, in Tampa, Florida, and um, Shihan, who had been on Death Poetry, was on like a Pepsi commercial, and um, I was like, this is really kind of I can't recall like the last time I've seen a poet on a commercial with like an international brain. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, yes. I don't know if I – no, actually, I, I have seen it since, but I've seen it sparingly. Jay Ivey did like an AARP commercial uh, within the past few years, but it's extraordinarily rare. Um, so that taught me that – you know, I mean, obviously from a, a marketing uh, – you could you could glean that you know, Pepsi was just like, oh, well, this is kind of like the hot thing right now. This appeals to an ur- urban market. Sure. However, more than one thing can be true. And um, they're not going to put Shihan on a commercial if, you know, Shihan is just saying, like, crazy things, right? So there, there has to be some sort of value attached to what he's actually saying, even though this thing is essentially to try to, to get people to, to buy Pepsi. But uh, I remember just thinking that that – you know, that small thing unlocks so much potential for other people who are practitioners of the craft. Um, yes. And I think that if, if you're dealing in poetry, you know, we're, we're constantly dealing with ceilings. There's always like, oh, well, poetry doesn't make any money. Nobody reads poetry. And there's this. However, yes. you get these little slivers from, from time to time, you know, Amanda Gorman, you know, being offered like yes. $1.5 billion for a thing. So, and, and these are poets. Um Rupi Carr, regardless of whatever people feel about, you know, the, the quality of her work, is, is a best-selling author, a poet. So these things have, have power, but I think they also show you what else is possible. It might not be possible for everybody, but nothing really is. Um, but, yeah, that, that was a, a really distinct uh, – and had you not asked the question, I probably never would have thought about that again in my life. <laughs> but <laughs> – but it obviously it, it left an indelible mark, and um, I, I think that um, you know I, I have to believe that in the digital age there, there's probably going to be more of that. I think that the, the Amanda Gorman effect is probably going to open some more doors, and just in terms of people allowing space for for poets to walk through. You mentioned the word, and I think you mentioned the word feelings. That there are feelings in poetry. I could be paraph- I'm paraphrasing, of course. Do you think that someone can be called a poet if they don't feel strong emotions? Um, yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, because, you know, there are there are different styles and there are different schools and, and forms and everything of, of poems, you know? Like, mm-hmm. um, 
if if a poet is uh, is a language poet and they're not necessarily trying to get at you know narrative or, or moving your your heart or even something that you know just kind of connects in a linear fashion, um, you know, I, that that's totally workable. Um, it, but I, for me personally, and I think that the um, the poems that, that really kind of connect uh, across the board are poems that do have some modicum of, of emotion, you know. Yes. There ha- yes. I, I shouldn't say that. There, there doesn't have to be anything. But I think that more often than not, some poem that gets at, you know, again, like the, the human condition, something that we all can feel. Um, I think that those tend to be the, the poems that, that kind of last longer. Well, please share another poem. Okay. So uh, because we're doing radio, um, this poem is called The Quiet Storm. And uh, for those who aren't familiar, uh, The Quiet Storm um, was a, like, kind of like 10 p.m. in the evening, you know, urban radio stations, black radio stations would start playing, like, R&B kind of, you know, baby-making music. And uh, it, was, it was called the the Quiet Storm. So <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to use that name just to kind of pay homage to the, to the tradition, even though it, it goes somewhere else, you know. So this is the Quiet Storm. The officer's gun still awakens me. Fifteen years after the night, his index finger became a cedar ring around the trigger. Any time I close my eyes. The muzzle's round cavity is trained on me. Anytime rest takes hold, my mind expects the bullet, the sharp burst of light and noise. Because it does not come, I live within a wound no one else can see. Trauma builds its monsters from the bones of experience. Blood records and remembers everything it survives. What did not kill me, I now belong to. What has allowed more time to pass through me, I am possessed by. What owns me, an ebony Glock 22 and a man's featureless face shouting behind a brass badge. My almost murderous breathe inside me. I hear grit rustling in their throats at all times. Some songs never sleep. Some songs never sleep. I hear grit rustling in their throats at all times inside me. My almost murderous breathe behind a brass badge, an ebony Glock 22, and a man's featureless face shouting, I am possessed by, owns me, I now belong to. What has allowed more time to pass through me, what did not kill me, records and remembers everything it survives. From the bones of experience, blood built its monsters within a wound no one else can see. Trauma, I live because it does not come. Anytime rest takes hold, my mind expects the bullet, the sharp burst of light and noise. Anytime I close my eyes, the muzzle's round cavity is trained on me. The index finger became a cedar ring around the trigger. Fifteen years after the night, the officer's gun still awakens me. Thank you. Wow. What do I say now? To an experience like that, what do I say, Christian J. Collier? What do I say? Uh, whatever you would like. <laughs> <laughs> Has a poem ever humbled or frightened you? 
uh, a poem that I've written or a poem yes, that I've, I've that you that, a poem that you've written. Oh, for sure. No, absolutely. Tell uh, me more. Tell me more. <laughs> there, there are poems. I mean, there, there are poems in this collection that you know. I'm like, I don't know, you know. <laughs> um, but um, a good friend of mine, uh, Donna Sprout Metz, who's who's also a poet, uh, she took a workshop with Patricia Smith a couple years ago, and afterwards she was like, you know, uh, Patricia says that she has like these rules for for her her poems. And uh, I was like, man, that's really kind of interesting. Like, what what kind of rules would I give myself? You know? And uh, I actually yes. revised the poem. I revised the poems in the collection based on a certain set of rules. And um, one of the rules was to um, allow myself to be dangerous. You know, um, say what say what I need or, or want to say or. or more importantly, say what the poem needs and wants to say, you know, because I'm, I'm following the poem, um, and I'm following that thing to, to get at some, some truths, and, and some of my experiences um, are, are in that. But, um, yeah, there, there's a poem, um, like just off the top of my head, there's, there's a poem in it uh, about a woman I used to work with who can never pronounce my name. And, and she right. just... She wouldn't just not pronounce my name. She would just call me by, like, a totally different name. Um, <laughs> so there, there's, there's like, the opening of that one. I'm just like, oh, you know, it, it's – because the, the poems also, like, don't come to play. Like, we're not – these aren't necessarily, like, trying to, uh, you know, you're not going to get a bouquet of flowers and, and probably want to read these things to to, <laughs> to somebody that you're trying to keep up. But um, – the, just the opening of that, and it, it's purely from like a, um, and whoever's on the other end of the poem, it's it's that kind of thing. Like, all right. I don't want them to, all right. to get the wrong. Okay. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, let's take a brief break, and we'll be right back. Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Christian J. Collier. Your name rolls off the tongue, my friend. <laughs> I think it's great. 
I really do. <laughs> I'll have to tell my parents. <laughs> <laughs> do that, do that. <laughs> All great writers have great writing influences. Who are some of yours, and what makes them great in your eyes? Oh, man, I, I have so many. Um, just off the top of my head, um, I, I love uh, I love Jericho Brown. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like they uh, Pulitzer Prize winning Jericho Brown. Um, I love the way that, that Jericho works mm-hmm. with uh, works with the line, but also the way that Jericho works with music and rhythm. Um, I think that that's really fantastic. Um, I've always loved uh, Sharon Olds and, and Ann Sexton. Um, I like the. Uh, I like what they do with, with voice, and uh, they, they they pull no punches. You know, they they give it to you honest and, and straight. You know, um, and that's that's definitely something that I've aspired to do in my work. Um, I like um, Matthew Rasmussen. Um, he has a book called Black Aperture that that came out, I think, back in 2013, and the whole thing is just just fantastic. And I think that the way that he interrogates uh, one central event. Like the, the book largely is about his brother's suicide, um, but he, he turns it around from so many different angles that you get to experience, you know, the way that it affects the family, the way that it affects this person. And I, I think that that's amazing. And um, that's, you know, I'm, I'm a Scorpio, and we're, we're, okay. we are known for our prowess as detectives. So anything yes. that allows for, you know, Analysis and interrogation, you know, I love, and, and that's something that I always strive for in my work, you know. Well, you've mentioned the word interrogation more than once, and I plan to ask you the question, what are some of the predominant themes of your work? I want to know. Oh, sure. Um, I think um, I'm always interested, and I'm, I'm going to use it again, I'm always interested in, in interrogating <laughs> Um, and obviously in, in this collection, you know, it's, it's, I'm a surrogating race, but also, you know, the region and also the country. Um, and, and that's kind of where that, that turning around kind of comes from, right? We, we get at those different things. Um, in, in my full length manuscript that, you know, I'm sending out again now, I'm interrogating what, what is a ghost? You know, who is a ghost? All of us are ghosts to somebody and we all carry our own ghosts into the rooms that we enter. Um, to kind of succinctly, you know, wrap it up, I, I would say that my work is, is interested in exploring the subject in a way that both utilizes the body and, and ventures uh, to explore the world beyond it. Hmm. Wow. I like that. Please share another poem. Absolutely. Uh, this is a, a John Coltrane poem. <clears throat> this is called When the Moon Couldn't Be Found. When the moon couldn't be found, John Coltrane seized my ear with the sound of his horn. As my girlfriend's father followed me out of Graysville, after he threatened to blow my head apart, if he caught my brown hand upon her again. The fog silhouette shook its head I barreled through in shame. It was witnessing again a black man stalked on a dark strand of Southern Road. At 3.37 in the morning, I was a blue locomotive, rage blue from one white town to another under a moonless sky. Coltrane was playing, 
and I wanted nothing but to be the rush of notes surging from the speakers, painting the shaded inside of my Dodge Intrepid. I wanted to be that free, that anointed by the sweet mouth of a dead god. Thank you. Wow. Some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature, Christian. Once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it. While others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on it? Uh, I, I all of that is, is accurate to to a certain degree, and obviously, you know, it, it, it depends on the poet, right? Um, mm-hmm. We all we all come to the table differently. Um, for me, um, I look at I look at the poems as being um, documents of a certain period of time. Um, all right, the poems that you know that are in the collection that, that first appeared in, in different journals and such, um, we've, we've changed those things. You know, I've, I've changed them after they've, they've been out there. Um, just because they appear in a journal and, you know, three, four years later or whatever, uh, it appears in a book doesn't mean it's going to be the same poem. doesn't necessarily mean that it should be the same poem. Um, and even when I, I pull these things out and do them live, you know, I'll change different things in the moment. Um, so it, it's, they they inform the experience, but they're not the, the total experience for me. If if that makes sense, um, it does. It does. And I like um, there's there's a wonderful artist named Mark Bradford um, who's tall and, and, and black and, and brilliant, and um, he he works in a fashion where he'll he'll build up something and then he'll just he'll tear it down using like power tools and then he'll rebuild it and he'll do the same thing. And I, I got really fascinated in his work a couple of years ago, and I thought, man, like, I think that this is kind of where it's at. Like, everything is malleable. Um, language itself is malleable, right? So once I kind of had that distinction, I was like, well, I don't want to be tethered to anything. Um, so if I'm uh, trying to edit a poem, you know, I'll gut a whole bunch of it. I'll flip the whole thing upside down. I'll do this. I'll rip this out and put this in. Uh, I'm not I'm not in love with anything. It's, it's all mag- all just material for me to utilize. And, um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's all it's all documents to me. You know, it's all just workable text. Um, the, the, all right. the format, the forms that I'm in, they all change. They all change and they change the poems. Mm. Share another poem. Absolutely. Um, so a couple of years ago um, that I would start writing poems for uh, black characters in horror movies. Oh, wow. And, uh, <laughs> it started as a joke. <laughs> but um, this was the first one that I got out of it. And um, so Julius Gaw is a, is a character in the movie Friday the 13th Part 8 which uh, is known as Jason Takes Manhattan. And he is the only black character in that film, which is also fascinating because half the movie takes place in New York, but whatever. <laughs> so uh, this is Elegy for Julius Gaw. Even though I've seen the scene well over 30 times and know how it ends, I still have hope in my souls. This will be the time some miracle will reach through the screen and save him. Though he's faced death on the ashen clavicle of that Manhattan building before the lone audience of the moon, 
he will somehow will his exhausted body into slipping that fatal Sunday punch to escape free, unsmudged and alive. Perhaps it is just the world refusing to let me be, to stay out of my head for the runtime of the film. But I also cannot help thinking about the other black boys, not hired by a casting director to be rendered headless on film. Those now forever anchored to being young, whose families were elected by the God of circumstance to carry the murders of their sons or fathers or brothers the remainder of their days. How many times have I seen the soul of someone black exit the pores of their tiny mosques of muscle and flesh, vacating this life? Each of their final moments with a horror film I did not pay to see and cannot let go of. In some way, isn't this the nature of being black in America? Always residing so close to terror, we are wounded but never surprised when it pitches one of us into the limbo of its maw. Me, I want the alternate ending. Not just for Julius, but for all the other young black men buried in my brain each one tucked into the pink soil of my mind. I want the alternate ending. A burst of lightning blossoms and brings them life again. And they gaze into the black eyes of their fates and say, take your best shot. Before punching their hands bloody, staving off the afterlife's hungry invitation. I want the alternate ending where they find their ways back into the graces of their most loved. In the distance, night leads away and a brand new beginning sets upon them. As the credits cascade down the screen, the language left on their breath is the antithesis of horror, thing close to horror. Thank you. Wow. Your writing is so visceral. Does writing energize or exhaust you? Uh, it, it does both of those things. Talk to me. I I think that, that that's part of um I think that that's part of it, you know. Um uh, a couple years ago, Rain Wilson was on um Super Soul Sunday with Oprah and and he yes. said that doing your your art, whatever your craft is, is kind of the equivalent prayer, right? You're you're in communion with something divine beyond yourself. And um I think that, like anything that has a spiritual component, you know, it is it, something that you can find great jubilation in, but also something that can be very taxing because it, it demands so much of yourself. It's not just a physical act. You're utilizing your your uh, your mind, you know, your emotional uh, states, um, who who you've been. You know, some of these things require you to, to enter moments that weren't necessarily the greatest in your life. And how do you process? Them? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's all a part of the sum, you know. And um, it it it's it's one of those things that um, I think is is part of the draw. You know, it's something that you can, mm-hmm. you can literally you can literally feel. And then after you get something that you're proud of, you're like, there it is. This this partially made this process worth it. And now I have to go bang my head against the wall and try to do it like. Some more time, you know, and um, that's, that's not saying that every every poem is like that or like that, but it definitely, you know, it, it's going to get you at some point. Times. <laughs> well, I really enjoy your work, and I want to hear another poem, my friend. 
Okay. And, and thank you so much. Thank you for all of this. So the last poem, I think, will be um, kind of keeping with the, the horror thing, right? Uh, this is uh, this is the Candyman Blues. Think of the commitment it takes to call any one name five consecutive times. Think of the desire at the heart of making it a mantra. What they call me is a sacred word built on blues and blood like any black man born and buried in the South. They say candy man enough times and I am obliged to appear because they made a God out of me. How could I not come when summoned, when prayed to? How can I not grant them their wish to see my face, mine the last they'll see, mine their guide away from this life? Many call me monsters. Who made me into one? What name should we ascribe to those whose brutality transformed me? If I am what they say I am, it is because I did not know my place back then. Because mm. I made love to a white woman, daughter in the kiln of her womb. Before I became a monster under tongues, I was the monster drinking in their sun. Now, my place is in the dark. The shadows and I keep company until the anxious chant of a curious mouth calls me out. Now, I live in the whispers of my congregation, in the quiet notes of their barely breathed hymns. Thank you. Wow. Gleaming of the Blade. When did you learn about yourself writing this book, my friend? Uh, I have learned so many things. I continue to learn <laughs> a lot of okay. different things. And as far as, you know, before, uh, right before the book got, got accepted, um, I was talking to my uh, my then fiancé, now wife, and I was like, you know. Oh, yeah, you know, it's one of, definitely one of the highlights of the year. But I, I felt really, really dejected, you know, because I've I've worked at at the the, the collection so long, and um, one of my biggest fears artistically is that maybe maybe I'm not seeing what it should be or what it needs to be, but I think I am. You know, mm-hmm. I always think that mm-hmm. maybe I'm a little bit off. Maybe maybe the message isn't quite clear, and um, I just I was having one of those moments. And um, and then obviously you know like a, a less than a week later the, the the people from Bull City reached out and they're like hey we we love this thing and and you know we want to we want to run with it so I think mm-hmm. that to um, and and I'm gonna have to keep reminding myself of this you know but um, I learned to just kind of trust the work um, and the work doesn't have to be for everybody it's not meant to to exist in every space. You just need it to exist in the one space, and hopefully that space will be the one that is the one with the most love and the most support and, and you know, the most opportunity. Um, yes. So I definitely learned that, but I also learned that, that people are, are really excited about the work, and that just blows me away, you know. I, I think being, being writers, we're so accustomed to kind of working in, in small communities or, or you know, in, in rooms alone. So the fact that on the other end of the poem, people are like, "Hey, this is great. We want, we want to know this. We want to do that." I mean, that's just another layer, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, what do you want readers to get from encountering your work? I I feel like my, my wants are, are pretty simple. Um, if, if people choose to check out the work, I want them to feel something. And I don't I don't necessarily want to dictate what what that is, but I like I like when I'm sitting down and I'm working on a poem. What I am aspiring to do is the same thing that um, a director, you know, in a movie is doing behind the lens of the camera. I want to put the audience in in the driver's seat, and I'm going to show you this world, and I'm going to show you these things that you know might break your heart, they might make you angry, you know, whatever. But I want you to have an experience, and um, I think that that's something that we all we all shoot for in, in different ways, you know, but that's definitely mm-hmm. something that I, I don't want anybody to read my poem and just be like, eh, okay, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, my idea for you to, you know, for it to kind of haunt you a little bit. Mm. Where can listeners find your work? Sure. Um, if, if people want to get the book, um, which if you do, thank you. Um, you can go to uh, <laughs> Bull City's website. Um, if, if you Google uh, Bull City Press, it'll it'll pop right up. Um, you also can search for Christian J. Collier, The Gleaming of the Blade. It'll pop up. Or um, you can go to my personal website, which is christianjcollier.com, um, and that's kind of like the hub for everything. It'll connect you to my Instagram and other social media. And, uh, yeah, uh, if, if you, you know, do that, just definitely say hi, and I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> All right. Would you be willing to share one more before we end this journey? One more. Absolutely. I can do that. And um, I You can share as many as you like, to be honest. I don't care. I'm enjoying this. So <laughs> unless you need to go somewhere, you can share as many as you like. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not going to eat up too much of your time. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Can I read? Uh, can I read one that we had to cut from the the manuscript? Yes, of course you can. Okay, so you you guys are again are getting exclusive content. Um, <laughs> so I'm I'm a huge Biggie Smalls fan, and um, we we had to cut it just because of like the rights for the for Biggie Smalls songs. But um, this is called America, a Biggie Small Cento. I know how it feels. I'm surrounded by criminals, there every night. I check the beds and the closet, everybody dying. Matter of fact, I'm sick of talking. People talk about it. Hail Mary, I stay seeing body after body. I wake up armed and dangerous. Before I go to sleep, the dog, mom's crouched over the casket screaming, hold your breath. I hear you. Sometimes your words taste like death, full of grace, with chalk around it. I know how it feels to wake up. I'm surrounded by criminals, armed and dangerous, there every night before I go to sleep. I check the bed and the closet, the kids, the dog, everybody dying. Mom's crouched over the casket, screaming. Matter of fact, hold your breath. I'm sick of talking. I hear you talk about it. Sometimes your words taste like death. Hail Mary, full of grace. I stay sing body 
after body with chalk around it. Thank you. Listening to you share, what is your definition of black masculinity? Um, how much time you got? Um. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to throw a heavy one at you in the last five minutes. <laughs> But it's about black masculinity. (laughs) You know, I've I've been raised by so many, you know, people who've illustrated different components of it, you know, from obviously like my my father and and people in my family, but also the people, you know, who I've modeled myself after like creatively. Um, And even like beyond that, you know, like Dr. Michael Eric Dyson and and, and Gregory Tate, I think – I think one of the most important things for, for about black masculinity is um, acknowledging that it's okay to have like the men experiences. Yes. And, um, and, and that's okay. And I think that um, that's one thing that I've definitely had to work on over like the past year is that like, I, like I hate showing emotion publicly. Like I hate crying when I'm like cutting mm-hmm. or, or sad or anything like that. I, I hate doing it. And um, yes, my ability as a black man born and bred in the South, but not, you know, this doesn't just apply to black men in the South. Um, my ability to make it from one day and into the next means that I have to be in control of my emotions at all times. But beyond that, mm-hmm. I have to be in control of how people interpret my emotions at all times. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I just don't really necessarily want to participate in that as much anymore. Like yes. I, I, want, yes. I want to be human and I think that that's okay and um, so that's one of the biggest things that I've learned about black masculine is just like we, we have to give ourselves more and more permissions to have the sum of, of human experience um, because if, if not I think that it, it just ends you know it ends up adding more stress and, and, and problems down the line that end up affecting all of us you know black women you know black communities all of it and um, yes I'm interested in, in what the world is in the world for black people is when, you know, if we just give ourselves that, that allowance and that freedom, you know, that's, that's an element so, of freedom. So you would say, if I ask this, and then we're going to close, the role of a poet in modern day society is to do what? And you we've talked about it already, but just, Give it to me one more time. <laughs> the role of a poet in modern day society. I think the role of a poet um, in everyday society is, is just to write. You know, um, mm-hmm. I think all the other stuff is in there. There's, I don't think that there's any way that you can write and, and not allow the world in and the world that you encounter in some capacity. Um, yes. I don't think that every poem doesn't need to be a political poem, but the political the political will definitely show up in a poem. Um, if, if the poet is actually, you know, just, just doing their job as far as like writing and reading and existing in the world with observation. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's my big thing is just, you know, I think that our, our obligation is to read, to write, but also, you know, to just allow ourselves to be a part of that process and, and to pay attention. Christian J. Collier, what's next in the works for you, my friend? What's next? Oh, man. Um, well, the, the book officially comes out in, in February. Pre-orders are, are being taken right now. Um, so I'm just really kind of gearing up for, for that launch. And um, I'm, I'm excited for, for people to get into the work. And, 
you know, this is my first real uh, real baby out there in the world. So I'm just excited about what the reaction will be. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today. I've uh, learned a lot. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being real. The gleaming of the blade, everybody. A book to buy. Well, I want to thank you, man, and I wish you nothing but the best. Likewise. Thank you so much. All right. (laughs) All right, everybody. As I share with all of you every week, let poetry ring throughout the land. Take care and be safe. Until next time, I'm Michael Anthony Ingram. All right. You have just listened to the quintessential listening poetry online radio podcast with your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And make sure to catch our next episode.